All right, Daniel chapter 7. Now, chapter 7 in the book of Daniel, uh, it, it signifies a, a change. The first six chapters of, of the book of Daniel is, is pretty much uh, a historic account of what happened in the life of Daniel and in the nation of Israel as they're in captivity there in, in Babylon. Now we get to chapter 7, and chapter 7 is a departure from history to the realm of prophecy. And we're going to be dealing with prophecy for these final chapters uh, of uh, the book of Daniel. Um, the most basic definition of prophecy is to speak by divine revelation. God divinely from heaven reveals something to mankind and, and to, to a vessel of his choosing. And, and then that man then speaks by this divine revelation uh, to, to those that God would reveal this information to. Now, um, when God reveals things to men and they in turn speak for him, this can include a whole realm, a whole range uh, of, of application. For instance, um, a, a prophetic teaching, speaking by divine revelation, uh, it could just simply involve the teaching of God's word in an everyday sense. If you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and if you were with us when we went through the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, we learn there that um, there is the gift of prophecy that's given. Uh, and this is then this gift of prophecy that God gives. This is, this is not a gift to, you know, I, I've got a prophetic word from God and I've got, you know, a, a 67th book of the Bible that God's given me. That's, that's not what this, this, this is. It's, it's more of, hey, I'm a God's vessel. I'm gifted with the gift of prophecy. I'm reading God's word and he's spoken to me through his word, and I then now am going to speak to you uh, about what God word, God's word says. And so this is, uh, you know, how a pastor who's gifted with the gift of prophecy reveals God's word, and he, and he uses that spiritual gift to the church just to, be a, just to proclaim, hey, this is, this is God's divine revelation, and I want to speak prophetically to you uh, about that. That's my primary duty, that I would use the gift of prophecy to speak by divine revelation. Uh, and I would exhort you in, the, in, in the, the, the word of God. As a matter of fact, as you read through 1 Corinthians 12, what you see is the purpose there is edification, ex, uh, exhortation, um, and comfort. And, and that's, so that's my job, is to speak prophetically by the word of God to you that you would be edified, that is, that you would be built up, that you would be uh, exhorted, that you'd, that, that you'd be pumped up, uh, and, and that you would be comforted. Uh, that, that you would be cheered up by, by God's word. And so this is, uh, this is one realm of prophecy. God also speaks by divine uh, revelation um, through a prophetic word of knowledge that, that he can give to, uh, to the vessel of his choosing just a prophetic word of knowledge. We uh, saw this exercised last night at the men's retreat uh, as we're there at the afterglow and just waiting on the Lord and God just revealing to a few of our pastors just a prophetic word of knowledge that they would speak out. And then, you know, we would see that uh, as they would speak out and say, hey, you know, the, the Lord's you know, revealed to me this, we would have 
inevitably a man who would say, yeah, that's me. And he would speak out and, and say, you know, that, that word was for me. We'll see this prophetic word of knowledge, uh, God choosing a vessel and saying, hey, I want to reveal something to you. We'll see this show up in a counseling situation where, you know, I'm in, I'm in counseling and, and God will show me something and I'll, I'll say, hey, listen, let me tell you what God just showed me. And I'll speak something that I would have no earthly way of knowing, but God has revealed it to me. And you always know when, uh, when that is exactly the word from the Lord, because the guy will get, you, get up and punch you right in the mouth. Or, uh, <laughs> you know, no, he'll, he'll just, somebody will be cut to the heart. They're like, how did you know? I mean, I remember the, the very first time I exercised, uh, you know, just speaking prophetically by a word of knowledge to somebody in a counseling situation, they just burst into tears, you know, and, and how did you know? Who told you? Well, God told me, you know, and, and so this is another way that, that we can, can use this, this prophetic gift. But prophecy in its most basically understood form uh, is the foretelling of future events, uh, and, and that's what Daniel chapter 7 and the following chapters are, are all about. It's God speaking from heaven and he's foretelling events that have yet to transpire. And fully 25% of the, of the Bible falls into this category. Fully 25% of, of, of the Bible that you hold in your laps is prophetic in nature where God tells the future. And the Bible is the only book that accurately predicts the future Thousands of years in advance. I mean, you can get the National Enquirer and it predict, you know, every year in January they've got their predictions and, and it's comical to see what the predictions are and they're never right. But the Bible is always right. And, and so, you know, here you have a quarter of the Bible that's, that's telling you beforehand what's going to happen and, and God nails it every time. And this is one of the ways, one of those unique ways that God authenticates his word. Uh, Isaiah 46, we'll put it up on the screen for you, says this, uh, the Lord speaking, remember the things I've done in the past, for I alone am God, I am God, and there is none like me, only I can tell you the future before it even happens, everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. Now it's interesting, if you look there in the beginning, he says, remember the things that I have done in the past. And, and what God is, is saying here is, is he's saying, look, you check my track record. You just look and remember the things I've said before that are going to come to pass. And that itself will authenticate that I am who I say I am, that I know what I'm talking about, that you do well to listen to me. And we have several ex- of examples of this throughout Scripture, just examples where we can remember the things that God has done in the past when he's called it, and he's called it exactly right. Ezekiel 37 is such an example where there we have this fulfilled prophecy where Israel uh, was taken captive by the, the nation of ba- by the kingdom of Babylon. This is what the events we read about in the, the historic part of, of, of the book of Daniel, and that they were taken captive about 605 BC, and shortly thereafterwards, the Lord spoke to Ezekiel the prophet, and Ezekiel prophesied that the nation of Israel would be restored as a nation. Now, it took 25 years, or tw- rather 2,500 years to transpire, but on May 14, 1948, uh, David Ben-Gurion, the head of the Jewish agency, proclaimed the establishment of the state of Israel, and President Harry Truman recognized the new nation on the same 
same day and the prophecies that were given by Ezekiel about the reestablishment of the nation of Israel absolutely, totally fulfilled. Now, we're going to look at this in greater detail when we get to, to Daniel chapter 9, and it's mind-blowing because he pegs, it to the, to, he pegs the, the things to, to the day of what's going to transpire in regards to God's fulfilled prophecy. And we're going to look at, at Jesus coming, coming back in uh, and, and, and his first coming, the, the Messiah coming, and, and it's just going to blow your mind, just the intricacies of the prophecies. And so, so, you know, there's an example of fulfilled prophecy that, that Ezekiel said, hey, this is going to happen. And we can look and say, wow, that, exactly, that exact thing absolutely happened. Again, another example of fulfilled prophecy concerned the first coming of Jesus the Messiah. Uh, again, we're going to look at this more in Daniel chapter 9. But, you know, there's almost 300 prophecies uh, given about Jesus in the Bible, all of them fulfilled. That he would be born in Bethlehem, to a virgin, that he would flee to Egypt, that he would be raised in Nazareth, that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, that he would be crucified. The Bible talking about crucifixion fully 800 years before crucifixion even existed, you know, and, and yet the Bible nails it 800 years in advance. Nailed it, you know, and so God authenticating his word, we see these prophetic examples over and over again that Jesus would be buried in a borrowed tomb, that he would be raised from the dead, all of them fulfilled. And one of the most exciting things about prophecy, and this is why Daniel chapter 7 and following ought to matter to you, is that he's going to be dealing now with prophecies. We'll see today some that have been already fulfilled uh, and some that haven't yet be fulfilled. And the exciting thing about the prophecies of God that haven't yet be fulfilled is the fact that God's batting a thousand. And so when we read this and we go, this hasn't happened yet, well, we ought to go, well, what's happening here in the world? And let's pay attention because these things can happen at any minute. And that's going to have a big bearing on the, hey, what does all this mean? And today, I just got to tell you, as we get into the text, there's going to be a, there's going to be a lot of information. And so what I need you, I really need you to put your thinking caps on and, tra- and track with me because today is truly a Bible study. Um, but, but what we're going to build towards is... And, and whenever we study the, the Bible, what we always build towards is answering the question, well, what's this got to do with me? And this study, as we're going to find out at the end, has a very significant thing to why this should matter to you. We ought to pay attention to that. So we're in Daniel chapter 7. We'll pick it up, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. And then he wrote down the dream, telling the main fact. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Now, he starts off there in chapter 1. He says, hey, this is happening in the first year of Belshazzar. So you will immediately recognize, wait a minute, we're going back Again, this is speaking of an event that, te- that took place uh, basically in between chapter 4 and chapter 5 of the book of Daniel chronologically. And so, again, we're, we're backing up here a little bit. And, and he's saying, look, in the first year of Belshazzar, and you'll recall just from, from a few weeks ago, Belshazzar was the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And so this
this happened during his realm in the first year, and this is when Daniel had a dream. Now, you know, up until this point, Daniel's been interpreting the dreams of others, but now here God has given Daniel himself a dream and visions. And, uh, and so verse 2, he, sp- he speaks uh, regarding those visions, and he says, I saw in my vision by night, uh, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, he's, he, in his vision, he's, he's talking about the Mediterranean Sea, but the, the sea itself is symbolic of a sea of people. And, and, and we know this because the Bible often speaks uh, using the sea metaphorically to refer to people. I'll give you one such example we'll throw up on the screen, Isaiah 57, where it says, The wicked are like the troubled sea. When it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. And so the idea here for Daniel, as he gives this vision and he's talking about this great sea, metaphorically this great sea of people, is he's saying that over the course of time, there's going to be the wind of heaven that blows. And we've been looking at that, the fact that God is sovereign. He's completely sovereign over the events of the earth and over, over the, 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 the comings and goings of men. And so he's directing his sovereign will. And so what's happening is over the course of time, we're going to see uh, four ruling world powers uh, that are going to, to rise from among the sea of humanity. And, and so this is, this is what we're reading here. And um, what we notice is that there's a, a striking parallel between the vision that God is giving Daniel uh, here in Daniel chapter 7 and the vision that God caused Daniel to interpret for King Nebuchadnezzar back in, in Daniel chapter 2. And, and, and so what we read here as, as we go through this is that we see that there are four great beasts that come up from the sea. And the significance of that is to note the difference between the vision that Daniel now has in Daniel chapter 7 and the the parallel vision that he interpreted in Daniel chapter 2. And if you'll recall, you know, back in Daniel chapter 2, when when Daniel is interpreting uh, the vision of King Nebuchadnezzar, he says, uh, you know, this image, you saw this great image. He says it was, uh, its head was of fine gold, its chest and arms were of silver, its belly and thighs were of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And, and so the, the description there is this great vision. That's, the, that's kind of the idea. And, and what you get in Daniel chapter 2 is a vision from man's perspective. Man sees a great image. But here in Daniel chapter 7, when Daniel gets this vision, he's seeing the vision from God's perspective. And that's very important. Because, excuse me, where man saw a great image in the likeness of men, well, when you look at God's perspective, he, he sees four great beasts. He doesn't see it as this great image of men. He sees it as this horrible image of these, of these beasts. And, and the, the, the point here, and this is really kind of a sub-point, and, and, and I just dwell on it sh- just for a few minutes here, but just the first point of application for us is that it's very important that we see things <clears throat> from God's perspective, not from our perspective. We have to see things from God's perspective. Whereas the man will look at this vision and he'll say, this is a, this is a great image of a man. 
God says, no, it's not. It's a beast. This is horrible. This is awful. Here's a point of application in our lives when we have to see things from God's perspective. You know, you know, we, have, we, we had our men's retreat yesterday, this, this, this weekend, and just talking to the guys about being leaders. And that was the big idea, that we need to be leaders. And, and as we're looking there and we're going through, through Matthew, Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 7 there, and, 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 uh, and basically Jesus tells a parable in Matthew chapter 7 about you know, the, the man that was wise and built his house on the rock and the man who was foolish and built his house on the sand. And, uh, and basically the idea there is, look, they both, heard, they both heard the sayings of mine, Jesus said. One of them heard the sayings and took action on it. He did something. And he built on the rock. The other heard the sayings of mine. And he, he basically went out and did his own thing. And, and his life was built on sand. And, and the winds came. The rains descended. The floods came. It beat on the house. And the wise man's house stood, but the foolish man's house fell. And he said, and great was its fall. And when we're talking to the men, basically what we're saying is, you have a responsibility, you have a job to be a leader. You have a responsibility to be, as we pray every week here, folks, not to be a hearer of the word only, but to be doers of the word. And so we just drove this message home where we talked about and, and made the observation with these men. Look, it's not a matter of if, it's, it's a question of when you're going to have the rains descend in your life. It's a question of when the flood is going to come in your life. It's a question of when the house of your life is going to be beaten upon. And you won't know until you're in the midst of that trial what your foundation is. Guys discover too late that they've built their house on a, on, a, on a foundation of sand, on a foundation that's crumbling, they only find out when these trials come. And we go through these trials and they hit and they are absolutely, devastatingly overwhelming. And the difference between the, true, the two is what, is what is the basis of your life? What is, what is, your, what is your life based upon? And, and inherent in that is that we need to see things from God's perspective, not from our perspective. And talking to these men about being leaders, basically, you know, several examples. See, from, from man's perspective, he basically, well, let, let's say today is opening season, you know, for, for the football season. Technically, I guess it was Thursday uh, with the Denver Bronco game, but today... Is opening, some of you are like, it's, it's today, I gotta go, I'll be out. Hurry up, Pastor Ted. Today is opening season. And so, you know, you might have a man who basically says, you know, um, church is inconvenient for me today. Because uh, my team's playing today, and I've been waiting a long time for this. I mean, life now has meaning and purpose, because the NFL has started back up the regular season. And so he may decide, you know, hey, not so good for me. Now, that's his perspective. And see, from his perspective, it's just a scheduling issue. From his perspective, it's like, hey, not so convenient for me right now. But see, from God's perspective, here is a man who, who really, I, mean, I don't want to be legalistic about it, but we're talking about what he's worshiping. And he's now, he's involved in idol worship. He's taking the most holy day and he's saying, I'm going to set this, side, this, day, this, this time aside you know, to worship my idol. And, and from God's perspective, he's placing something else before God. God says, you'll have no other gods before me. 
Second commandment. And so this is what's going on. From God's perspective, you have a man who's supposed to be leading his family, and rather, what the message that he's sending to his children is, listen, you will worship God when it's convenient. And when it's inconvenient, well, then that's, you know, it's not just that important. And so it's so important for us to understand, we have to see things from God's perspective. From God's perspective, he sees this is beastly, this is awful. Man says, wow, this is this great glorious image. God's like, no, it's not. No, it's not. You know, you might have an ex- a, 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 a person who, you know, they think, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go and I'm going to hang out at Pechanga and, you know, I'm going to do some gambling. I'm going to get some entertainment. And again, not to be legalistic about it. I don't just want to paint it with a broad brush and say, if you ever go and watch a show at, at Pechanga that, you, that you're in sin. But Man, if the shoe fits, because sometimes from God's perspective, he's like, look, that's not entertainment, that's compromise. You know, that, that's not just having a fun time, that's drunkenness. That's being entertained by evil, that's bad stewardship. Hey, from God's perspective, that might be, look, you're robbing from me because you have no problem going out and popping out, you know, 100, 200 bucks to, to have a night on the town, but, but you don't put a dime into to the, the offering to, to, to worship me in your, in your financial giving. And, and so we, it's so important for us that we need, we need to see things from God's perspective, not from our perspective. You know, one final example of that, and, and it's a tragic example, is just, you know, the world looks on and says, hey, it's a woman's right to choose. And that's, that's their perspective. And from God's perspective, he doesn't quite see it that way, does he? No, in Leviticus 18.21, it tells us that God says, Thou shalt not have any of thy seed pass through the fire to Molech, neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God, I am the Lord. Now, Molech was a, a god that was worshipped by the Ammonites. And the way that they would worship Molech was in a sexual ritual, and then any of the products of that sexual ritual i.e. children, they would sacrifice to the god Moloch. And it's brutal and horrible the way that they would sacrifice, but they would basically have this bronze statue with outstretched arms. They would heat it up until it was glowing red hot, and they would take the infant and lay it on this statue. And then they would rhythmically play the drums so that the sound of the drum would drown out the sounds of this poor dying infant. It's horrible. By the way, when we hear the, the, the saying, you know, we're drumming that out, they're going to drum that out, it, it, it comes from this, that the sound of the drums would drum out the sounds of this, this awful action that the people are doing. And when you think about it, and the nation in which we live, when we've, uh, we've legalized abortion, and since Roe v. Wade, there's almost 56 million children that we have sacrificed essentially to the God of Moloch. He's this God of pleasure, and we're going to be engaged in our sexual activities, and this is just my freedom. This is a woman's right to choose, which, is, which I can't stand that, by the way, because fully 50% of the, of the babies that are aborted are, are women. What about their right to choose? And so we have a world that sees things from man's perspective, and there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. It's so critically important. We have to see things from God's perspective. Now, as I say that, I'm acutely aware that 
in a group of this size, there are those of you that have had an abortion. There are those of you men that have participated and maybe driven your girlfriend or whoever down to participate in this. And God's word to you this morning is this. In 1 John 1, 9, it says that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God would say to you this morning, man or woman, if that's you, that you, you in confessing that sin to the Lord and, and saying, Lord, have mercy on me and forgive me and cleanse me, that indeed he will. Now, for those of you that may be in a situation now or, you know, of contemplation of I'm in a fix, I'm in trouble, and maybe this is <clears throat> something that, that has, has even briefly, even remotely crossed your mind as a, as a future alternative, a future opportunity, I don't want you to hear First John 1, 9 and go, well, there's my out. God will forgive me. No, no, don't do it. But if you have been in that position, if you have made that decision, if you have made that choice, there's forgiveness and cleansing available to you in Jesus Christ. And you need to hear that today. I believe that's a word of the Lord for someone today. And you need to hear that. You need to know that, that God's forgiveness is complete. And you need, to, you need to, to, to surrender that to Him. Romans 8.28 says that in all things, God works together for the good to those that love Him and are the called according to His purposes. And God will redeem even the most horrible thing and the, the comfort that we have if there's any comfort that we can have in this 56 million babies that have been aborted, that the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that in God's economy, these children are now with Him. And they're in paradise. And so that's critically important. But our point here, and what I want you to hear, is that we need to see things from God's perspective. And, and that's a takeaway from today that you need to really think about your life. Your life doesn't belong to you. You were brought at a great price. God the Father gave his son to die on the cross for you. On the cross for your sins in your place. And so we need to look at things from God's perspective. We need to consider our life from God's perspective, not from our own narrow perspective, not from our self-centered perspective. We need to say, what is this action in God's eyes? <clears throat> And so Daniel's vision, it's a parallel of this vision from Daniel chapter 2, where prophetically he sees these wild beasts that are reflective of the world ruling empires to come. And now he goes on to describe it in verse 4. He says, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, uh, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And so here he takes these symbols, the lion and, and the eagle, both of them at the top of their respective realms, the eagle being the top of its perspective realm and the lion being the, the top of the animal kingdom of, of its realm. And basically, this is the first great beast. The image is reflective of the nation of Babylon. And, and it's this great, unparalleled, uh, powerful Realm, the top of, uh, of, its, of its realm, that's the picture there. He says, this is the first one. And, uh, and then he goes on in, in verse 5 and he says, And suddenly another beast, 
A second, this is the, that, that second world ruling kingdom that would come and dominate. And he says, it's like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. Now this second world ruling empire, we know from the vantage point of history, this is the Medo-Persian empire. Again, this is paralleling the, version, uh, the vision of Daniel chapter 2. And so this is the Medo-Persian empire. And so it's like a bear in the sense that it's, blood, it's got a bloodthirsty appetite. It, 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 is, uh, it's, it, it has the, the, this command that they say to it, arise, devour much flesh. This was the Medo-Persian Empire. They were, they were a conquering wicked bunch. In fact, the Persians were the ones that invented crucifixion. Uh, the Romans perfected it, but the Persians invented it. And so they knew what it was to be bloodthirsty and, and just horribly uh, devouring um, and, and interestingly, it was, it's the, the, in the Daniel's vision, it was raised up on one side. And, and the, the explanation of that is that you have the Medo-Persians. You've got the Medes and the Persians together that comprise the second world ruling empire. And the Persians were the stronger of the two. And so it was raised up on one side. And it had three ribs in its mouth, and that would be symbolic of these three great victories that the Medo-Persians had. They defeated the Babylonians, they defeated the Egyptians, and they defeated the Lydians, um, or Lydia rather, and so they have these three ribs, it has these three ribs in its mouth um, between its teeth. We continue verse 6. After this, Daniel says, I looked and there was another like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. Uh, This beast also has had four heads and dominion was given to it. Now again, we know from history this was the Greek empire. And he says it's like a leopard. And what is a leopard? It devours its prey quickly. It is fast. And, And what we saw from history with the the with the Greek empire is that they swept very quickly, dominating and defeating the world. It was, it was led by Alexander the great who conquered the world by the age of 28. It said that Alexander the great conquered the world so quickly that he wept because there wasn't more of the world to conquer this swift, like a leopard, you know, conquering. And then it says, uh, it, it had on its back four wings of a bird, and it also had four heads. And, and the issue there is that uh, Alexander the Great, the, the leader of, of, of Greece, um, he, he died prematurely, and his kingdom was given over to four of his generals. And so that's the picture there. And, and so he says, I, verse 7, after this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, there's a lot there. Basically, this is, we know from history, speaking of the Roman Empire. And he says of this, of this fourth beast... Uh, He says that it was strong and it had huge iron teeth. And iron being just that symbol, again, it's a parallel of the vision that that Daniel uh, interpreted in Daniel chapter 2 and and the uh, the legs of of iron and so on. And it's symbolic of the Roman Empire that just crushed its enemies. Rome was this empire that basically operated under what was called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And, and, And the Peace of Rome was a basic philosophy that said... Uh, if you don't mess with us, we're cool. 
Just, just, just be submitted to our rule and everything's fine. But if you mess with us, we will crush you. You're dead. Um, and, and it was very successful because, man, it, most people do, just, just subjugated themselves to, to the, the Romans and everything was cool. Hey, it's, it, it's peace. But those that didn't, they did crush him. They were horrible. But this was different from all the other beasts, Daniel says. And, and, and it basically, here's how it's, it's different, in that Rome never itself was conquered. Rome was never conquered. It just sort of crumbled and, and sort of, you know, wasted away. You know, it, didn't, it, 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 it just sort of wasted away. And so the, the issue is it was different in that no other nation came and conquered Rome. And so when he sees that not only, you know, he, he sees it as having <clears throat> these huge iron teeth, devouring and breaking pieces and all, but it was different, he says, from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. And this speaks of a fifth world-ruling empire, which is really just the continuation of this fourth world-ruling empire, the continuation of Rome in that there's going to be this ten-nation confederacy that rises up, and it's just a revival of the Roman Empire. And so Daniel continues, and he says in verse 8, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now what he's talking about, he's talking about the Antichrist here. Basically what he's saying is, you have this, this Roman Empire that all of a sudden just sort of, just, just kind of faded away, but then it was revived as this ten-nation confederacy, and of this ten-nation confederacy, basically you're going to have three of this ten-nation confederacy is, is going to be crushed by this, as it were, this eleventh person, this eleventh horn that rises up. Well, it's Antichrist. He crushes three of them, and all the rest of them kind of say, hey, that's cool. You, you, can, you can sort of be in charge here. We'll see more about that, what's going on. And so this is, he's talking about the, the, the realm of Antichrist to come. Now, again, stay with me. We're talking about prophecy, and basically in Daniel's vision here, he, he gives us a lot of prophecy that's already been fulfilled. We saw Babylon, you know, coming, being in power. We saw the Medo-Persian Empire come into world domination. We saw the Grecian Empire come into world domination. And we saw the Roman Empire come into world domination. All of this exactly as God prophesied. And all of this happened, all this prophecy, all this vision, before any of this ever happened. I mean, as a matter of fact, Greece was like nothing at this point. Not even on the radar, like they could have done anything. And the prophecy given, and it's absolutely, look, this is certain and it's happened. He, he nailed it. And so now, that as we read this, there's a part of the prophecy that hasn't yet come to pass. We need to know. You can take it to the bank. It's going to come to pass. This is something that, that is going uh, to happen. Now, thankfully, Daniel's prophecy doesn't end there. He continues, verse 9. He says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. This is speaking of God the Father. 
His garment was white as snow, and their hair, the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And, and this is a beautiful picture you can read in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, this corollary view of this, and just what a beautiful picture this is of, of, of God in heaven. And all, and we continue there at the end of verse 10. It says, The court was seated and the books were opened. What books are they talking about? They're talking in heaven about the book of life being opened, which you can read about in Revelation 20. They're talking about uh, the book of the living uh, that's mentioned in Psalm 67. They're talking about uh, the book of remembrance, which is talked about uh, in in, uh, the book of Malachi. Which is amazing, if you, if you just read about this, this book of, remem- of remembrance in Malachi, it talks about how we as Christians, we talk among one another. And, and, and we just, we, we talk of the Lord and how awesome he is and the things that the Lord has done. And we speak blessing to one another and words of encouragement and all. And what it says is that God up in heaven takes notice of the conversations that we have. And he, and he keeps a book of remembrance just to say, you know what? That's beautiful what just happened right there. And he writes it down. He writes down there in, in, we read in Revelation 20, there's the book of life. And is your name written in the book of life? And he talks there in Revelation 20 about those whose names are not found written in the book of life. And he, and, he, and he gives this graphic picture of how we will be judged. And you will either be judged according to whether your name's written in the book of life. And if your name's not written in the book of life, you're going to be judged according to your works. You do not want to be judged according to your works, my friend. And, and so it's a matter of, am I going to just basically trust my life to Jesus Christ and his work on the cross? And is that my hope of, of being redeemed? Is that my hope of a right standing with God the, based on the work that he's done, dying on the cross for my sins in my place? Or am I going to place my hope in my good works to attain some sort of right standing with God? And Revelation 20 tells us that if you're going to be judged according to your works, well, the end is not going to finish out well for you. And so what happens here is he's talking about how God the Father is going to show up. And here you've got this fifth world-ruling empire, the the, the revival of this Roman empire, head up by Antichrist, and God's going to show up, and he's going to put an end to his dominion, to his rule, to his reign, and everyone's going to, the books are going to be open. God's going to call all of mankind in for a final accounting. Verse 11, I watched then... Because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. This is Antichrist. Speaking blasphemies and horrible things. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. God wins. That's the end of the story. God wins. Verse 12. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. What does that mean? Here's what it means. He's talking about whereas the Babylonian kingdom and the Medo-Persian kingdom and the, Greece, the, the, the kingdom of Greece and, and of the Roman empires where all of those continued one after the next, uh, you know, basically what he's saying is, you know, they continued, they were, they were conquered, but, you know, then they continued and they were conquered and then they, but, it, you know, here everything continues. Babylon continues being there and so on. And these guys are conquered one after the other. What he says is, listen, the kingdom of Antichrist is, is not going to continue. Nothing's coming after that. He's going to be judged. 
His judgment is sealed. It's final. There will be no world ruling empire after that but the dominion of, uh, of God. In verse 13, he says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, that's Jesus Christ, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, the Father, and they brought him near before him. Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven, written over and over again in the scriptures. If you recall in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus there, he's appearing to his disciples, and he's appeared to them many times in the days following his resurrection. And in final appearance there, in Acts chapter 1, he appears to his disciples, he's talking to them, and then it says a cloud received him from their sight. And they're standing there just, just, just amazed, and they're staring up into to heaven. And these angels show up and they talk to the disciples and they basically say, what are you standing around for? You know, Jesus told you to do something, go do it. But they say, why are you you standing here gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who's gone from you is going to return in like manner. He was taken up in the clouds. He's going to return on the clouds, with the clouds. And, and, and Jesus, before the Sanhedrin, they, they're talking to him. And, and it's the night that, that, that he was betrayed. He's on trial. He's hours from his death. And finally, they ask him the question, are you the son of God? And he says, I am. And you will see the son of God coming with the clouds of heaven. And so here we have this picture, one like the son of man, son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, They brought him near before the Ancient of Days, the Father. And then, verse 14, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, uh, the one which shall not be destroyed. See, the angel prophesied to Mary in Luke chapter 1. He said, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a a son... And shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And he will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The prophet Isaiah prophesied. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. And so here Daniel prophesies that Jesus will decree, de- defeat Antichrist. He's going to defeat Satan. And in verse 15 we continue, Daniel, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit. Now why is he grieved in his spirit? Well, first of all, because he hasn't had the explanation yet that I've just given to you of this vision. So he hasn't had the explanation yet. And also we're going to see that he's grieved in his spirit because, and we're going to get there in a second, but if you skip down to verse 21, he says, I was watching and the same horn, this speaking of Antichrist, was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. And so what he's doing is, is Daniel seeing that this horrible world ruler is yet to come and that he's going to be prevailing against the saints. And so that just causes him to be just troubled 
He said, and he says as much, and, and the visions of my head troubled me. Verse 16, he says, I came near to one of those who stood by. He's having this vision, you know, in, in the hell, heavenly realm, and there's, there's one there. And so he asks him a question. He came near to him, and he asked him the truth of all this. He's like, what is up with all of this? Can you tell me what's going on? And so he told me, and he made known to me the interpretation of these things. Here's the interpretation. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Typical Bible fashion, two verses sum up the whole whole of all of mankind history. All of mankind's history is summed up in in those two things. Hey, there's going to be all these world-ruling kingdoms, but God wins. That's basically what, what he says. That's what you need to know. But Daniel presses him. He says in verse 19, then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast. He's like, yes, but what about this fourth beast? He's troubled. And and here's why. He says, which was different from, he was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet and the 10 horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which has eyes and a a mouth which spoke pompous words whose appearance was greater than his fellows, Antichrist. And he says in verse 21, I was watching and the same horn, this is is the, the crux of his concern, was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, hey, listen, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth which shall be different from all the other kingdoms. It shall devour Uh, the whole earth, trample it, break it in pieces. The 10 horns are 10 kings who shall arise from this kingdom. So you've got the Roman Roman kingdom that's going to just sort of wither away and now it's going to have a reviving, this 10 nation confederacy. And another shall rise after them. This is Antichrist. He shall be different from the first ones, these 10 horns. He's going to be different from them. And he's going to subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the most high, uh, shall persecute the saints of the most high and shall intend to change times and law. We're going to come back to that. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. This is three and a half year period of time. It fits into the tribulation period, which we're going to be talking about more in the weeks to come. But the court shall be seated speaking of, of God the Father and his kingdom, and they shall take away his dominion, dominion, speaking of Antichrist, to consume and destroy it forever. And then the, king, uh, then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. And so, you know, here he says, look, the, the, the kingdom of God's going to prevail and the saints, man, they're, 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 it's going to be given to them. You'll recall in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where uh, the, the Corinthians were taking one another to court and they're suing one another. And Paul was freaked out about this. He's like, what are you doing? Why are you acting like this? Don't you know you're going to judge the world? 
And, and you're going you're gonna to defile the, the name of God by you can't even work out this petty matter that you're going through. You've got to go to court and, and give this witness and this testimony before everybody that, that you can't figure stuff out. Hey, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna judge the world. He, Paul's speaking about what's going to happen when God's kingdom comes and prevails against the kingdom of Antichrist and, and we live in this millennial reign of God for a thousand years here on the earth. We are going to judge the world during this time. And so that's the, the idea that, that Paul's talking about there. Now, he says there in verse 21, and this is what really freaked Daniel out, was that the Antichrist made war against the saints and that he prevailed against them. And, and so this is significant because when we read in, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said this, he was talking to, to Peter. He said, hey, look, you know, who, who do men say that I am? And Peter answered and he says, you know, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets, whatever. He's like, okay, great, but who do you say that I am? Jesus says, you're, and Peter says to him, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus responds to Peter. He said, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And he goes on to say, he says, I also say to you that you are Peter, Matthew 16, 18, and on this rock, the, the rock is on what, what rock? On the profession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, what's the it? It's the church of God. Jesus said, listen, the church that is, that is by definition, those that say, Jesus, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I'm going to follow you, and I'm going to place my hope in you, and, 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 and you are the one that I'm going to worship. The church, hey, the gates of hell won't prevail against it. But now we read here that Antichrist is going to be prevailing against the saints. And we say, how do I reconcile this? Well, a couple of different ways. First of all, Antichrist is going to prevail against the saints because, uh, well, he, he won't ultimately prevail. Uh, God's going to judge it in their favor against him, we read in verse 22. But secondly, and this is the point that I want you to hear, there's a difference between these saints and the church. And this is really important. Um, we're going to get into this in Daniel chapter 9, but the Bible teaches that there's a set period of time that the church is going to be in existence. And then at a certain point in time, guys, listen, he's going to take us out. The church is going to be raptured. It's going to be taken away. And that's going to usher in this, this, this system to where Antichrist can come in and to where you can have this, this fifth ruling uh, world ruling power, as it were, or if you want to look at it as the fourth ruling power, Rome revived, that's when that's going to happen. See, here's why. When the Jews rejected Jesus, God made salvation available to the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy so that they would return to him. I'll put it on screen for you. Romans 11 says this, did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Speaking of the nation of Israel. Of course not. They were, they were disobedient, and so God made salvation available to the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? You and me, right? God made salvation available to the Gentiles, but he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. Now, if the Gentiles uh, were enriched because of the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, 
Think how much greater a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it, when Israel finally accepts their Messiah. I want you to understand this mystery, Paul is saying to the Romans, my dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud of yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will last only until the full number of the Gentiles come to Christ. And so what that is, this is the age in which we now live. We live in what's called the church age or the time of the Gentiles. And there's going to come a period of time when, when that's done and God's going to remove his church. And this is the rapture. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, he said this. He said, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Listen, we're almost finished and we're finishing on this point, but Paul said the same thing to the Thessalonians. Listen to what he said. He said, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Jesus Christ returned on the clouds. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when this says that we will be caught up together with him in the Latin, that phrase caught up, it's the word raptus. This is where we get the word rapture. And this is what the Bible teaches, that God will call us up to to be with him. And here's why God is going to remove the church. He's going to remove the church because that time of wrath is coming. Because the Antichrist will be coming and he needs to take us out of the way before the Antichrist comes. And there's a couple of biblical precedences for this, just really quickly. I mean, we see in, 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 in the, the flood that God saved Noah from his coming judgment. Why did God flood the earth? Because the earth was wicked. Because mankind was wicked. And God poured out his wrath upon mankind. But before God could pour his wrath out upon mankind, he had to take the righteous out of the way. And so he took Noah, and there he put him in the ark, sealed him himself in the ark, and he took him out of the way. And that's a picture of God taking his remnant out of the way before his wrath falls. We see the same thing with Lot. Before fire came down upon Sodom and Gomorrah and consumed the wicked in Sodom and Gomorrah, and God poured out his wrath, what did he do first? He took the righteous out of the way. You remember that scene of the, the angel telling Lot, get with it, buddy. Come on, hurry up. I got to get you out of here because we can't do this thing until you're out of the way. And these just serve as a couple of examples of God. He's going to take his righteous out of the way before his wrath falls. And that's significant for us because right now we watch on the news and we see all this stuff happening. And everybody's freaking out about what's going on in the Middle East as well we should. And Jesus prophesied that it was going to be that way. And, and we see, you know, what's going on with Syria, and we see the chemical weapons, and we wonder, are we going to attack them? And we see Russia intricately involved. We see us being right on the precipice of World War III, which we are. 
and we wonder what's going to happen and are we going to, and Russia has come out and basically said, look, if you, if you try and attack Syria, we're going to use our anti-missile technology and we're going we're to shoot your missiles down and now you're going to have actively the two superpowers of the world, you know, essentially fighting against one another and this thing could spiral out of control in a hurry. This is why people are freaked out and saying, don't attack Syria. Don't, don't, why, you're going to take a dog by the ears and you're going to get involved in that thing and this is going to be horrible. And, and, and all, and, and well, the reason they say that is because this thing could turn into World War III in a hurry. And you see these things, and it causes great concern. If you've got a pulse, if you're breathing, if you're, if you're paying attention, it ought to cause you some concern. And, and yet, here's the thing, here's the piece for us. Hey, God's going to take us out of the way. There's a moment in time when God's going to say, everybody out of the pool, and he's going to grab us, and he's going to take us to be with himself. And that is going to usher in the tribulation period. When the church is taken out of the way, that's when the tribulation period will come. That's when this fifth world ruling empire will come to power. And what I want you to hear, and this is the point of application. This is the part at the beginning when I said you're going to hear all this and you're going to go, so what's that got to do with me? Are you ready? Because as you look prophetically, Jesus can return for his church at any moment. There's no prophecy that's yet to be fulfilled that needs to be fulfilled before Jesus can call us to himself. And when Jesus calls us to himself and takes his church out of the way, there will be those that are left behind. You do not want to be left behind, my friends. It's going to be a horrible time. When, when Daniel sees in his, in his vision in verse 25 that this Antichrist is speaking pompous words and he, shall, he says he shall persecute the saints of the Most High. That word persecute, it literally means wear out. It is going to, he is going to crush and wear out those people. Now you say, well, wait a minute, the church has been taken out of the way. Who are these saints? These are those people, your aunt, your uncle, the people that are so hard-headed, you're like, listen, trust me, there's a time coming when, you know, I'm out of here, and you're going to wonder, where did everybody go? Would you hear from me that this, that, that this is really true? And, and there's going to be many at that point that are going to go, well, I'll be doggone. He knew what he was talking about. He wasn't a tinfoil hat-wearing nut job after all. He knew what he was talking about. And that's going to happen. And so those people, at that time, they're going to, 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 to recognize you're, you're God. And they're going to give their life. But they're going to go through a tribulation period, a, a crushing that you can't imagine. And so the, the emphasis is, man, you don't want to be a part of that crowd. You want to be hidden in Christ. And I'm going to give you an invitation today when we're done just to make sure, am I, am I hidden in Christ? Am I one of his children? It's when God returns for his church, will I be raptured? It's about placing your faith in Jesus Christ. It talks about him intending to change the times and the laws. And basically, you can interpret this a bunch of different ways, but you know what you read in Hebrews chapter 9, and, and it basically talks about, well, let me put on the screen for you real quick. I said I was finished. I am, but re, hear this. For the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And that's why he's the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can, can receive the internal inheritance that God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of sins that they had committed under the first covenant, just as each person is destined to die one and after that comes once and after that comes judgment, so also 
Christ died once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation upon all who are eagerly awaiting him. See, the issue is it's appointed unto man to die once and then to face judgment. This is the time that we're talking about. And the thing is, is that Man, we have to understand, today is the day of salvation. This is what Paul said. He says, today is the day of salvation. And so when the Antichrist seeks to interfere with the appointed, you know, with times, well, what this may well mean is he's seeking to interfere with the appointed time of salvation for those who would come to him. And this is so important. Because we need to understand that, that there is a full court press for your soul. There's a full court press for your life. And I was going to have you turn there, but we don't have time. So just trust me. I'm going to read it. You can write down the, the scriptures because I'm finishing on this point. 2 Peter 3, 10 through 14. And let me just read it to you and we'll be done. Here's what it says. It says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and and godliness? Skip to verse 14. He says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things. What things? The return of Jesus Christ. The heavens being rolled up like a, like a scroll. Everything being dissolved with a fervent heat. Looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot or blemish. And I close on this point. Are you hidden in him? Are you found in him? Because this thing could happen today. And we see all of the signs of the times and we're going to get in this in the weeks to come. It's fascinating stuff to look at. But it all tells us this. Jesus Christ is returning. And it is, he's coming quick. And are you ready? Are you ready for him?